Welcome to Sunday School, a Christian Bible Church. So we have a visitor today. Um, we'll go ahead and open in prayer and then we'll uh, get into the session for this morning. So basically I put up there as Acts 5, 1 to 11 recap and we're really not going to look at the whole thing again because we've been, this is part 4 in Acts chapter 5, 1 to 11. So I want to move on from part you know, from 1 to 11. So, okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for bringing us here this morning to learn from your word. I pray that you be with us, give us understanding, and also lead me, give me words and wisdom as I teach. I pray that you be with all of us as we learn from your scripture and help us to live the life that you require of us. So, Father, we praise you and honor you for all the things that you have done in our lives. And we pray for those who are on their way here, I pray that you give them safety. We pray also for the ways who are away. I pray that you be with them, bless their ministry abroad in the mainland. And I pray, Lord, that you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so the things that we're looking at, Acts chapter 1 to 11, some of the things, obviously, a question that I would ask is, what is it talking about? And we know the answer by now, right? Ananias and Sapphira, the lie to the Holy Spirit, a lying to God. And so the punishment, what happens when you lie to God himself is one of the things that this passage would be teaching us as well, along with the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira. So even though within the narrative, there is Ananias and Sapphira involved in the narrative, there are sort of uh, from a discourse perspective, there are uh, characters in the, in, the, in the discourse. So every narrative has or should be asked a question. What can we learn from this narrative? What can we learn from the scripture? So basically from narrative this, of this Ananias and Sapphira, we can learn that we should not be like Ananias and Sapphira. We should not take advantage of God. We should not... Uh, you know, lie to God, which is already obviously sin as we see that in here. And God is not going to accept making him a, a, a joke in the community. So Ananias and Sapphira probably thought nobody is watching what they're doing so they can do whatever they want and they can, you know, um, deceive disciples. They can deceive Apostle Peter. They can deceive other members of the church because that was the formation of the church in the book of Acts. And so how would God, or why would God take it lightly in any form or way of what was happening then? And even today, that is one of the lessons that we can learn even to, to, today. So today, what I want to do is I don't want to much focus on the narrative because we already know that, but I want to focus on the theological implications and move on through this chapter from, from 5, 1 to 11. So we learned from previously that God is watching every single thing. Nobody can escape from the eyes of the Lord. Yes or no? Right? We cannot deceive God. There is no way humanity can ever be able to deceive God. It is, it's just in our head, in our mind that we think we can. Oh, we can lie to somebody, you know, because why not? We can lie to somebody. But we may think in the same lines that we could lie to God as well. But there's, I mean, we could, we could lie to God. But obviously God knows what we're doing. God knows what's in our heart. Um, and so here we're learning from this narrative that we must be utterly careful when we're dealing with God, not only when we are dealing with God, that in general as believers, we have to be utterly careful. What are some of those, uh, I, I keep forgetting this reference, but there's, uh, I think it's in Proverbs, I believe. Uh, the, the eyes of the Lord is what? Every place. And who can escape from it? 
Everything is so visible. God can see. I think I mentioned this to the high schoolers the other day. God can see through the core of the planet Earth. Nothing hinders him. Nothing hinders him. He's all over. He's everywhere. He can see all things, including our hearts. So the another passage, I believe it's in Proverbs as well, where it talks about God hates six things. The seventh thing is, is abomination. What, what is one of those six things? Lying. God hates lying. God hates gossip. God hates any um, misinformation or trying to inform, talk behind somebody else's back. These are some of the things God doesn't like. But yet most we see most of our people do that as if it's their second nature. For some, it's like as if it's their first nature. They do it, they go on and do these things. They gossip, they talk about people behind their back and then they do a lot of these things, uh, uh, um, um, untruthful things. They talk about untruthful things. So all this God hates, especially lying. And in this passage, we see that they're not talking behind Peter's back or any of that, but they're lying to Number one, Holy Spirit, Peter says, and then they move on. Peter moves on to say, you're lying to God. So obviously, Holy Spirit is nothing but God. And still, the problem that we see in that verse is do not lie to God. So what are some of the theological implications that we learn from these verses? Reading the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we could learn some things about God and also draw some applications for the church and for us, for individuals and also for the church. So what are those? God shall not be mocked or fooled, and he will respond to insults. You might think, well, I mean, I every now and then I see people insulting God, and especially in my culture, where I, where I come from, they cuss every kind of thing. They, oh, for Christ, for example, Christ is for them a joke. Christianity is a joke. Yahweh is a joke. So they pull out these names and they insult the names of God because he won't do anything. The title for Christianity in my culture is these are sheeps. Oh, there's a sheep. What does that mean? That's an insulting term. Oh, there's a sheep. The sheep is like so innocent. It's, it's coming right to the sword of the slaughter. So there's a sheep. So that's an insulting term for Christianity as if there's a sheep. And these guys insult God, Christ. They insult the God of the, you know, in the old, they, they title the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. God of the Old Testament is as cruel as it can be. God of the New Testament is opposite. So which one do you pick? They go on on this rant and they insult Christ, but then nothing happens there. So in that sense, okay, so God is not punishing these people who insult them. So why not we? I mean, we insult God in some form or way, right? What is one of, what is one of the ways of insulting God? When Christ, uh, when God's word said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, do we grieve Holy Spirit every now and then? We do some things that grieves Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be sort of insulting the majesty of God? Yes or no? Yes. If we look at them and we say we see we see these people saying these things about God and the Christ, and we say, well, God isn't punishing them, or God isn't doing anything to them. I think that's a that that's a misunderstanding of what actually is going on. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the problem is that we don't realize that part of the penalty of sin is is, is sin itself. You know, as it as you engage in sin, it corrupts you more and more, and you actually become less human, mm -hmm. not more human. And and this is the message of like of, of Romans to us as, as people engage more and more in sin. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to exactly what they wanted, which 
just led to this cycle of degradation. And so as people do that type of stuff, it, it may be God's patience is working out in certain circumstances where he's like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to call you to account for this just yet, but be known that your sin is still working out mm -hmm. your life, still degrading you, still destroying you right now, and then there will be a time where you are called to account. And the reality is that that patience of God, we may look at that and say, well, that's just God not taking any action. But we're all beneficiaries yes. of that patience. Mm -hmm. You know, if God wasn't patient with me, he would have destroyed me the first time I sinned, the day I was born. Mm -hmm. you know? but, but God was patient with me, giving me an opportunity to repent. And so we can't say, well, you know, God, I don't like your patience. You know, because we're all beneficiaries. Right. God is patient. And that's one of the things they're missing, right? I mean, from like going back to the example. Yes, this one, uh, that was, I think I made a point last week is, this is, this is a pretty hard point, but we have to accept because that is scriptural. Is, and that is when we lie, we don't lie to inanimate uh, objects. They don't feel anything. But animate in the sense when we lie to human beings, we're basically lying to God, Right. Especially Christians, because who's in, in a believer's heart? Huh? Holy Spirit. A believer is a what of God? Temple, right? So when we lie to another brother or sister in Christ, we are lying to... Because God is watching. God is everywhere outside. God is in the believer. Right? God is in another sister. God is in another brother in Christ. So when we even, I mean, the thought of even lying when we say something or when we are about to say, God knows exactly what we are going to say. So even before the words or that, that sort of a made up thing coming out of that lie coming out of our mind, God knows exactly that what we are going to say. And wouldn't that grieve the Holy Spirit that is in us? Why is that? Because I told you through the scripture, so many ways and in simple terms, God said, command, do not lie. Do not lie to one another. Be kind to one another. Yes. But I see in some aspects, there, there are believers who fail in these simple things. I've worked with so many other people who, uh, I don't, there's a term that I, I, I heard it once, chronic liar. Is, it a, is there a term as chronic liars? That they, they lie, but they don't even notice it, that they're lying. It's just in them. And then <laughs> they sing and praise and God with the same mouth. I'm like, Lord, I, I like to learn from mature, I, even this day, I like to learn from mature Christians. And here's somebody, and I had I struggled for two years. How am I going to learn something from this? How am I going to follow this person? God, are you teaching patience? That's, that's one thing I lack. So I'm, I'm, what, what do I do? And so over the time that just that person just left, but then I had so much of a hard time because to see somebody lying right in your face and expect people to take it easy so or just move on with it. How are, no, you can't move on with certain things because especially this passage is teaching <clears throat> lying to God is a dangerous thing. Lying to believers also, we're not supposed to lie to one another is also what we learn from this passage. So God takes everything seriously. There is a saying, uh, I mean, this could be an insulting term here, but in my culture, it's like saying everybody has their day. Meaning God is watching every single thing. 
So everybody is responsible to answer God. And these people who mock God, who fool, uh, who take God into, into the silly, who curse God with these terms and so forth, everything else, as you're saying, they're buying, they're digging their own trouble deeper and deeper and deeper. One day they're going to answer God. They're responsible to answer God. They're going to pay the price. Right? So God is, some of us might be thinking, why is it the whole world is just so mocking at God and belittling Him, but God is still not doing anything? That's because, again, God is patient. God is kind. God is merciful. God is waiting. See, I think the focus of God is not so that He could destroy everything. If He wanted to destroy, like you said, it would have happened day one. Game over. Right? It would have happened, but God is so kind, so long-suffering. He told Himself, I am long-suffering. I'm loving kindness, my name, or my being, my nature is loving kindness. So instead of God, I, I, I just taught this in the class, in the other class, instead of God pouring out His wrath, which is also biblical doctrine, because we end up only listening to God is love on one side, but we don't end up learning much about God is wrath on the other side, because after sin entered in this world, it is subject to what? God's love or God's wrath? Wrath. It's coming, like tumbling down. It's like it's a rolling down the mountain. But then, who's holding it from falling on the humanity? Jesus Christ. He's begging people to believe. There is no need for him to beg for people to believe. Because who is protecting us from God's wrath? Not our wonderful, beautiful lives. Our fancy lives. No, God is protecting us from his own wrath. He's holding it, but one day, roll it out. Game over. There's no opportunity at that time. But people take this so uh, insignificantly and think of this. Uh, maybe they don't even think about it. But God is the one. Christ is the one who's holding off everything. And he's still waiting, still waiting, still waiting. And, and it's just so beautiful how God says in the book of Ezekiel, Son of man. Son of man, I, my, my glory is about to be removed from Jerusalem, removed from this temple. I'm just looking if there is at least one person that would come and talk to me. One. I don't want 10. I don't want 50 people. I don't want 100 people. I just need one person. Is there anyone that could come and stop me or talk to me from what I'm about to do? Son of man. Think about this. Ezekiel is just speechless. Ezekiel's mouth is just locked. I don't know, Lord. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. There is not even one that will come to God and talk. Moses talked in the, in the back. In the, in, the, in the old days, when they were in wilderness, if Moses did not interfere when these people were creating the golden calf and dancing and giving to party and everything else, God said what? Until then, he was like, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to hearken to these people. I'm going to bring my people out of the land of Egypt. Okay, wonderful. They, he brought them to the Sinai and there's dancing and party going on. God was talking to Moses. God said what? Moses, look at what your people are doing. I'm burning with anger. I'm about to pour out my anger. Moses begged God, Lord, for the sake of the covenant that you made with Abraham, please. Do not consume them with your anger. Do not, do not destroy them. God said what? Okay. You asked Moses only because you asked. That is the relationship of God and Moses anyways. But you see God's anger was stopped because of the pleading of Moses with the Lord. And so 
Throughout the Bible, we see that, I mean, this whole universe was condemned. The entire universe was contaminated with sin. But it is God who is holding, Christ himself who is holding us, I mean, who is holding this universe to be burned out from the wrath of God. It is him who is saying, I'm still waiting. There's, if, is there anyone that want to believe and come? Just like Ezekiel, that he mentioned to Ezekiel, with Ezekiel, I mean, we look at it as a prophecy and oh, the Ezekiel book of Ezekiel is so complicated, I can't understand, so forth and forth. But in Ezekiel, God is pouring out his heart. Son of man, look. Son of man, see this. Son of man, look, they have those craven images even into their walkway. Son of man, look how people are bowing down to these images and statues. Son of man, look how my temple is defiled. Son of, it's just, God is pouring out his heart. But he's also said what? One day, one day he's going to cleanse the hearts of people. How can you and I, how can you and I live or fellowship with the Holy God? How can you and I have a fellowship with the Holy God? We ought to be what? Can God give access to unholy people into his presence? I think that is what? Ezekiel 40 to 48 is teaching one of these days at the last days God is going to cleanse the hearts of these people before they come into his presence because God is holy there's no room for unholiness so I mean when we are dealing with such a holy God people just forget that they think Christ is okay this is a, a prophet from this little town of Nazareth uh, well, somebody recently uh, questioned me and Christ took the sins of the world so he became a sinner. How come a sinner is God now? Or how come a sinner is in heaven now? When he took the sins of the world, he became a sinner. I'm like, you need to go read some theology. But that is the understanding of people. So how can God cleanse these people when he himself took the sins and he bore the sins? Meaning he took sins on him. So right now, the whole world's sins are on, the, on his shoulders. So how is he a holy God? Sort of a question. People don't understand that God is holy and that would, he would not allow anything unholy. The book of Habakkuk teaches us what? God's eyes are too pure. Oh, it's not just pure. God's eyes are too pure to look at what? Sin. So we can draw a, an understanding from that is when Christ said, My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? Meaning God had to turn his face away from his beloved son. Why? Because he was holding on what? Sin. The sin of the whole world is on his shoulders. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why can I, how can he not? Because his, his beloved son is holding the sins of the world. And God's eyes are too pure to look at sin. So people don't have this understanding of God is holy. And some people say, uh, you know, I'm not pointing at you because we haven't talked about this. Theology professors. They say holiness is an attribute to God, not I disagree with it. There are several attributes, but holiness is just being of God. God is holy. His, his, his being is holy. Are you all with me? What is, what is the definition of an attribute? Added to something, right? Attribute. I attribute something to so and so. But there's no, holiness is not added to God. It's his name. His, his being is holy. His name is holy. God is holy. There is, there is no other definition. He is holy. So people don't understand that. And they just do all kinds of things. Talk about all kinds of things. Belittle in all kinds of ways. But everybody is going to answer God. And we, especially believers, must understand that God is holy. And he will not let any unholy. I mean, he won't approve our unholy living. 
God punishes us. He would teach us so that we could come to our senses and realize what we are doing and live life that God requires of his people. God is holy. He is just, he is merciful, compassionate, long-serving, yet he chastises us. He punishes us for the improved behavior. Now we probably have known people who live and continue to live in that sin forever and ever and ever. But they wouldn't answer God because if they are not willing to change, I would even ask the kind of people, do you really have a serious relationship or understanding about what Christ is and what he has done? Do you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because it, it goes to that question, right? If I'm continuously living in sin and I continuously try to praise God. Now I said last week, I mean, from the words of Christ, you cannot serve how many masters? Can you travel on two boats? I see big boats, I big ships. I love to go and touch them. You just took it. But can I travel on both of them at the same time? No. You can't do that. You, either you go that way or this way. I cannot think I can live in my sinful life, yet I go to church and praise God. It's because even if I pray, when I live in my sinful life, my prayers won't cross the roof. They won't pass the ceiling. God doesn't care about that. And we wonder why is that sometimes God doesn't answer my prayers because our life has some problem. Right? And even, I mean, I'm going out of the subject here, but even for us when we pray, sometimes we don't even know how to pray. So Jesus prays for us. That is scriptural. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. So Holy Spirit prays for us. Our life must be absolutely according to the scripture. So here we're learning, uh, again, theological implications. Ananias and Sapphira did partially right thing. Yes, they, haven't, they didn't do a whole, entirely wrong thing. They sold the thing. They were not all the terrible people. They sold what they have, but kept some for themselves, and that is bad. So this is a bad desire. Both wife and husband let Satan influence them by seeking to please people and get recognition. Then to please God. And what can we learn from that is, are we to please people or to please God? Galatians 1.10 says what? Am I to please men? Or to please God, says Paul. If Paul were to please men, wouldn't he be doing that? Paul was not naive to philosophy. He was, not, he was a scholar, in my understanding. He's not, he's not some uneducated person. If he were to please people, he would have. But then what did he say to Corinthian church? Hey, I didn't come to you with worldly wisdom or philosophical jargon. I didn't come to you with, my, with the high-end knowledge. I came to you with simple message. What is it? Gospel. Gospel is foolishness to who? I came to you not in philosophical mind. I mean, if I were to come, I would. I'm, I'm Paul. Don't underestimate Paul. I can talk the talk, but I came with gospel message, not with sophisticated presentation. <laughs> I mean, we were to, because Paul was trying to please God throughout his life. And that's why I think he was able to say that I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I'm waiting for my reward. How do you know, Paul, that you have a reward? <laughs> I'm waiting for my reward in heaven because I've did the right thing. How many people betrayed Paul? Are there some who left Paul? And Paul said in the scripture directly, I have given them so and so to Satan. What do you mean by giving them to Satan? Do you have power? Paul to go and talk to Satan? No, he let him go. He led him to the world. World. He let him go to, into the world because their desire to go into the world, their desire is to go into the world. He let him go. There's so many people who betrayed and Paul 
even, I mean, he didn't cry out in the scripture saying, I'm crying, but he expressed that, that there are only few people that remain with him. He was faithful. He was pleasing God and not pleasing men. So what are we to do as, as believers? We are to please God, not men. I can put on a smile and deceive a lot of people if I want to. But if I do that, who am I to? Am I going to be punished by the Lord? Will I have to answer the Lord? Obviously, yes, because and that's what we see sometimes is fake, 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 fake smiles. Nothing sincerity in that. Or fake greetings and so forth. As if nobody is watching. But God is. We have to be open with one another. We have to be honest in the sense, honest with one another because God is watching. And when, when can we be honest with one another is when we are honest with God. Right? Because that's where our living, um, that's how we live. That's how we should live. When we are honest with God, we're going to be honest with everybody else. When we are not honest with God, it doesn't matter. The other people is not our concern. Ananias and Sapphira's hearts were tied up with reputation. They did not lay treasure in heaven. Are we, what can we learn from this again? Are we laying treasure in heaven or not? Or are we piling up things on earth, which is going to be perishing at some point? Right? The church is a place for the, of the presence of God. Ananias and Sapphira, another theological implication based on 5, 1 to 11. Ananias and Sapphira were deceiving the believers and the apostles, but they could not deceive God. Ecclesia, church. It was forming until chapter 5. There is no term for church, specific church. But here we, in chapter 5, we learn about that church, the term Ecclesia. God formed the church. In church, there is presence, God's presence. Wherever the two or three gather in the name of the Lord, what happens? God's presence is among them, right? Yes? What happened in the wilderness when there is a temple? God's presence was among them in the tabernacle on Mount Sinai. They, they were even scared. Lord, you mentioned that last week. Oh, we don't want to talk, Moses. We don't want to talk to the Lord. It's scary. We're scared. You talk to him on behalf of us. Where God's presence is, it's a holy place. What was that? The uh, command, the chief, is that the chief commander of the Lord, of the armies of the Lord? That Joshua meant, or not Joshua? Commander of the, commander of the what did he say? Take off your sandals because you're standing on the ground. Same thing that was said to Moses. So church, basically, whether we want to admit that or not, church, where God's presence is, there is a holy place. And how can we... As, as believers come to the presence of God and not be absolutely, utterly open with Him, with everybody else, when God is clearly watching. So these are some of the implications of Acts 5, 1 to 11. They were lying to God. That is, Ananias and Sapphira were lying to God. People were selling their properties because they have observed, sensed, witnessed the power and presence of God in their midst. And what can we draw from that is when we also witnessed the power of God in our lives. What is one of the ways that we witness the power of God in our lives? God saving us to begin with, right? When we believe that salvation is such a mighty thing in our lives, how can we not be honest with the Lord? God has done so many things in our lives. Sometimes we recognize them. Sometimes we're thankful for them. Sometimes we don't even care about them. 
I mean, if we were to count how many things God has done in our lives, obviously it'd be numerous. We cannot count. And I pray in that prayer that I ask God to forgive me because I cannot remember all the benefits, all the blessings that He poured in, in, my, in our lives. Because I don't. But God has done so many things. So I've witnessed, I've observed. I mean, we, we all done that. And there are also people, they were, they were witnessing God's work. So they observe, sense, witness the power and the presence of God in their midst. And how can you lie to God when you know all these things? Ananias and Sapphira. Just a few chapters back, there's a descending of Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit in the form of wind and also in the form of how? Fire. In the form of wind and fire. Fire is a symbol for what? God's presence and also judgment. So, I mean, oh God, you killed Ananias and Sapphira. Well, that is to begin with, when God descended in the form of wind and the fire, there's two things he's saying with fire. My presence is among you with fire. Judgment is also brought. So be careful with how you live. And that is the warning God already gave. So the people were lying to God here. So like those who received God, we must also revere or revere God. We must also revere God. We must be open with God and seek for His will in our lives. As opposed to Ananias and Sapphira. If in fact true believers of the church would not seek for self-glorification. Rather give God the glory. True believers accept the call for suffering as is the call for Christianity. That is the will of God. There are like five or six wills of God spread out in the New Testament in the Bible. And one of them is the call to suffer. Christianity is not a fancy life. It's not a call for you know, absolute prosperity. And you're going to, if you believe in the Lord, you're going to be a billionaire tomorrow morning. That's not how it goes. It's called for suffering. What would Paul, what did Paul do to Timothy? Young Timothy, he called him to partake in the suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is a young guy who's got a lot of life in front of him. And why would he need to suffer? But Paul calls Christianity by that he's saying, preaching the gospel is not an easy task. Being a servant of the Lord is not an easy task. So he's calling for suffering. So true believers accept the call for suffering rather than expecting a self-centered boost from the congregation. What was Ananias Sapphira doing? Hey, we're going to give so and so and so. Where is the praise? <laughs> Where is the worship for us, right? And a couple of weeks back, I made this comment. You know, some, sometimes churches, uh, especially if there's a, like a six or five team of pastors, and the bunch of rich people sitting in the church, they're going to go greet them. They're just the most important people in the church because they have to elevate them to get what? If they don't elevate them, they're not going to get something. To pay off the bills and to pay all this. That is absolutely wrong. That is a wrong type of administration altogether. And if that is the case, if that is the case, why did Christ not go to the rich people and be friends with them? What was one of the things the Pharisees said? This guy sits with the tax collectors and sinners, right? They didn't like that because these are some of the high-end range people or some fancy people. They don't meet or shake hands or even wave their hands or even look at the so-called sinners. But Christ, he's gone sitting there eating with them. That's a horrible scene for them, right? But that is how God is and why are we... Who are we to be any different? God's, everybody is equal in God's eyes, but it is us who differentiate based on categories or richness or poorness of people, but we shouldn't be doing that. God's presence brings both grace and judgment as we are learning in this chapter. The coming of the Holy Spirit in God, of God in Acts 2 is both the sign of God's presence and judgment. So is in the church. 
Church must learn so many things from that 5, 1 to 11. Church should learn so many things from that chapter, from these verses. We cannot fool God. Church cannot fool God. Administration, I think there's a comment here too. God doesn't tolerate sinful behavior. Most of the times we understand God's mercy in a wrong way. And God is gracious and merciful and He forgives us. Yes, but we should not take advantage of God. That's one of the things that we learn from this chapter, right? They took advantage of God. What happens? God is not going to let anything happen. He's not going to take that insult. The church is growing. People are believing. And these two people are influenced, not possessed, but influenced by Satan. He's not going to let them destroy God's church. Anything ever happened to God's people? And obviously, when you go to the... How much time do I have? <sighs> Seven minutes. That's sad. So... When you look at wilderness scenario, for example, in the book of Numbers, there are some people who didn't make it to the promised land, right? There are some people who didn't make it to promised land. Why? Because of their what behavior? They're complaining to Moses. Moses, we don't have this to eat. We don't have that to drink. I mean, oh, you brought us here to die. You brought us here to kill us, Moses. God, Moses, who's Moses' friend? The only friend that he could rely on. What do I do, Lord? Just kill me. I'm tired of this. Take me home. I'm sick and tired of these people. I don't want to be leading. Here, you want a knife? Cut. Moses, hold on. They're not complaining against you. But they're complaining against who? I'm going to teach them. Obviously, I'm going to share your load with others. So don't worry. I understand what you're going through. But I'm going to teach them a lesson. God taught them a lesson. God taught them a lesson. A lot of them did not make it to the promised land. A lot of them did not make it to the promised land. What is the reason for Moses to give the law for the second time? Deuteronomos. Deuteronomos. Deuteronomos meaning second. Onomos is law. Why? He already gave the law. What is the point of law? I mean, if you look at from Exodus into Deuteronomy, what you're seeing is the Ten Commandments are being exposed. There's sort of a commentary on Ten Commandments, basically. But what is the point of second law? Because there is a newer generation that Moses was talking to. Not these old people. They're almost all, all of them are almost dead. Newer generation. What happened? After Joshua died, along with Joshua, the elders of his time, those people who were aware of Yahweh, they're all dead. And there came a new generation. They knew not God. And the angel of the Lord came, chapter 2, and says, I brought you people. Your great forefathers, I brought your people out of the land. And I told you to obey my voice. You did not. So what's going to happen? These idols and images are going to be a snare. They're going to be a problem to you. And so God, I mean, we can learn so many things. If I go into Old Testament, I won't come out today. So God doesn't tolerate sinful behavior. There are so many people in the wilderness we can learn lessons from that they died in the wilderness, they couldn't make it because of their sinful behavior. So most of the times, we understand God's mercy in a wrong way. God was even merciful. God was testing according to the book of Numbers. What is the theme of the book of Numbers? Testing. God's testing His people to see their faithfulness. God has always been faithful. Are these people that I'm leading out of this, I've led out of Egypt, are they going to remain faithful or not? When we look at the book of Numbers, it's like, oh, this is another boring book. Or Leviticus, hmm. I don't want this book. It's full of laws and holiness stuff. And I can't do all that stuff. This is not for me. But there is a reason why God is doing all that. By end of Genesis, God formed what? His nation. In Exodus, 
God is bringing them out. God is showing his power. Leviticus, God is telling them how they ought to live because the world, they will represent Yahweh to the world. Be ye holy for I am holy. Who said the same thing in New Testament? Fisherman. Peter, fisherman. Be holy. I like Peter. So sometimes if you see, if I, if I say Pete, you know who I'm talking about. So be holy for I'm holy. And then we come to numbers, testing, testing, testing. And we come into this last book, the second law. God gives so many uh, ways of information. God was so merciful to these people. God was forgiving at the same time. He did not take sin lightly. So, so we should also not take him lightly. God forgave his disciples that ran away from him. He forgave Peter who denied God three times. Yet the Bible says that God would certainly punish his own. Paul says in Corinthians 11, 29, 30, taking, talking about the wealthier believers. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. I mean, we have to read that again. This lack of time, I got two more minutes, but you see the point? Paul in Corinthians talks about the wealthier believes, believers. That God would punish his very own people. We shouldn't be surprised. God would punish us if we don't live. Church leadership must take, must take sin seriously like the apostles did. This is an important thing in today's church to grow and to live in a godly way. It comes not only from, I mean, we are not only, we are responsible for our own lives, but at the same time, the leadership is also responsible. Why did God place leadership to lead the church? Because members, they look at this under shepherd, under shepherds to learn, right? Who's the chief shepherd? Jesus Christ. Who are the under shepherds? Pastors, church leadership. Okay. So they must take sin seriously. Like the apostles and believers are saints in God's presence because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So here is what I want to make a point. Some people say, I and mean, there's excuse. This is always an excuse to me. I'm just not convinced otherwise. And what is that excuse? I'm not perfect. Hey, why are you doing? Oh, man, come on, man. You think we're all perfect? We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. So we do mistakes. So in that sense, you have your own license to keep doing what you're doing, to keep living, living how you're living. From God's perspective, we are not imperfect beings. Yes or no? We are perfect from God's perspective. If not, then that work of Christ on the cross is in vain. So from our perspective, we come up with this excuse saying, I'm not good enough to do what God requires. But that is simply an excuse. If, God, if you and I are not capable of doing what God wants us to do, why would he even ask us to do anything? Because God is after all the one who created us and he knows our limitations, right? Are we mortal or immortal? God knows our limitations. So obviously he's, he's not going to step on our throat and command us, demand us to do it. He's not that kind of God. Believers are saints in God's eyes because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Though we are saints and declared righteous by God, we must still take sin seriously and try not to fall into temptations. Church leadership is accountable for church members' lives as well. So being a pastor is not a small thing. I've been to several churches again in the States when I was there. So many pastors, they just cry out for their congregations. Small churches, big churches, I don't see that a whole lot, but... Small ones, they just cry out for the congregation. Every, every church service, they're talking about them. So the church of God, not denomination, must be concerned about God's glory, God's will, God's mission. 
This is the responsibility, the privilege of Ecclesia to Theou, meaning the Church of God. This in Greek grammar, so Theou is a genitive form. So genitive basically indicates a possession. Church is God's. Are you with me? It's not mine, it's not yours, it's God's. There's no such thing as church is mine. If I start a church, that's not mine. I'm just a messenger, a mediator. I'm just a middle person. The church is God. Ecclesia to Theo, it belongs to the Lord. So we're out of whew, time. Give me one more minute. The purpose of this, of, uh, typo. The purpose of this is then worshiping God in spirit and truth. The purpose is then not to seek reputation, but God's glory. Not the size of the church we should be concerned about, but the magnitude of praises. Not, do not, not seeking the prestige of leaders, but humility, dedication, and devotion to God's cause. This is what we are to learn. Last thing, what we must know and understand is this. Christianity is not simply a transformation, but a complete transformation from inside out. And we do not see this in Ananias and Sapphira. But we see this in who? Who was the other one that Luke was contrasting with? Barnabas. We don't see this in Ananias and Sapphira. They're not complete, there's no complete transformation. However, we see that in Barnabas. So what do we do? Be like Barnabas, not like Ananias or Sapphira. Be generous like Barnabas and not unwise like Ananias and Sapphira by lying to the Lord while seeking self-reputation. All right, any questions before we leave? Yes. There was a slide where it says, the Lord punishes for improved behavior. Could you clarify that? Punishes in the sense chastises or maybe God will teach us to learn how we ought to be living in accordance with the guidelines of God, in accordance with the scripture. So, But punish doesn't mean like he's going to slap upside down. That's not what... I mean, yes, because of his love, yeah. If not love, he wouldn't care. Like, like the Pharisees and scribes and the so-called scholars of his time, they bought their own trouble in the sense like when God started to speak in parables, that's the very reason because he's seizing them to understand the point. Because they've already made up their mind. If God loved so much of these people who, uh, I mean, he, he doesn't want anyone to perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, that is from God's perspective. But if they already made up their mind, what is he going to do? Right? So obviously, if he loves you, God loves you, he's going to chastise, he's going to teach you. And if he doesn't, then you're already done. Sort of a thing. Okay. Any questions? No questions? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. And this time, I pray that you be glorified through our lives. I pray that you teach us, O oh Lord, how to live a life that will honor you. And I pray that if anybody needs salvation today in this church, as if they come to church this morning, if anybody's in need of salvation, I pray that you open their hearts. Lord, I pray that you save them and also be with the preacher this morning. This is going to give us this word, uh, the, your word in the church. I pray that you open our hearts and speak to our hearts, Father, so that we may learn and live and glorify you and please you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you all for joining, for coming.